0: Good morning, church. Is He worthy? Is He great? Let's devote our time to hearing from our worthy and great God now as He speaks to us through His perfect, holy, awesome Word. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to pray yet again and ask God to help us For apart from Him, we cannot hear and we cannot obey His Word. So let's go before Him again in prayer. Father, as we study Your Word this morning, as we seek to hear from You, O Lord, if You do not move within our hearts, Holy Spirit, they will just be mere words. We cannot hear, understand, resolve to obey, and then actually obey can't see the world the way that it really is through your truth unless, Holy Spirit, you illuminate our eyes. For even those of us in this room who have been given new hearts still have the old man and old woman in this room who are tempted to just wander off into thinking about other things right now, are tempted to be indifferent, are tempted to be arrogant. Oh God, would you help us, humble us, remind us of what we are, creatures, Rebels who once hated You and despised You and yet by Your mercy and grace have opened our eyes to the reality and the glory of Jesus Christ and have given us new hearts. That now by Your Spirit, if we walk in the Spirit, can hear from You and understand You and live for Your glory. Would You help us do that in this area of our lives that Paul, through Your Spirit, addresses us in this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, how many of you in this room have a smartphone? hands, I want to see hands, I need some participation, okay. How many in this room have a dumb phone? Dumb phone? Anyone? I can't see your hands. Okay, I see a few, all right. Now, people my age and younger might find this hard to believe, but is there anyone in this room who does not have a cell phone at all? What? Oh, the, oh, the kids, you're, you're, yeah, but you will. I'm talking more adults. Any adults not have I I don't think I see any hands. If you have a smartphone, Raise your hand if you're an Android person. Okay, wow. Any Windows people out there, like the Windows phone? Yeah, that was a failed, failed market. iPhone people, where are you at? iPhone? Okay. If you have your iPhone and it's nearby, pick it up and show it to me. Show me your iPhone. Okay. I'll go like that. No, I'm kidding. Okay. I want to ask you a question. Holding your iPhone in your hand, and Android people, you can, I mean, you're part of the rest of us, but... You can imagine this, too. If you have an iPhone, have you ever thought about the process and the people it took to put that iPhone from the factory floor to the retail store and into your hands? Unless you think I'm some great poet, I stole that line. It's actually the title of an article from the New York Times, An iPhone's Journey from the Factory Floor to the Retail Store by David Barboza. He wrote it December 29th of 2016, so it's... Approaching four years old and at the time over 1 billion iPhones in the world had been sold And at this point about half of them were made in Jingzhou China Probably butchered that pronunciation I looked it up on Wikipedia, so it's not my fault But what David Barbosa does is he actually does a very big overview And he actually doesn't even get to the retail store in his article, but he kind of goes through the steps that it takes to get that iPhone from this factory in China into your hands. And obviously we're not going to talk about all of them, but the first part he talks about is getting the parts. There are more than 200 suppliers that supply this factory with the components to make your phone. Not 200 components, 200 different suppliers. There are, in building the iPhones, 350,000 workers employed. 94 production lines, and 400 steps to assemble your iPhone, which then it is assembled, wheeled out on a pallet, then it has to go through customs, then it has to go to the airport in Jingzhou, and then it's loaded onto a 747, where it's then flown, if it's going to the U.S., it usually goes to Anchorage, Alaska to get refueled, and then it flies to Louisville, Kentucky, the majority of them. And each 747 holds about 150,000 iPhones. Now, the article stops here, so he doesn't really get to the retail store in the U.S., but then you can imagine from there, it goes to distribution centers, to retail stores, and then eventually into your hand. What is my point? There are a lot of steps, both big steps, like being a pilot who flies 150,000 of these things, or the engineer who designed this, or the person who designed the processor, to get this iPhone into your hand. But there's also a lot of small steps, like a person on the assembly line who puts in one part, or the guy who simply grabs a box and loads it onto the pallet. Lots of people, lots of steps, lots of roles. Each person involved in this process to get that iPhone from the factory floor to the retail store and into your hands ought to view themselves as not just loading a box or putting in a processor, but and being a part of putting millions of iPhones into the hands of millions of people. All right, what's the real point? Every sermon illustration connects to a grander point. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we sinful, rebellious creatures can be declared righteous before our perfect, holy, and righteous Creator God through the life, death, resurrection, and intercession of His Son Jesus is the greatest news in the universe far exceeds an iPhone in what it can do and it doesn't need updating either this is the main message of the Bible and it is it was brought to its most clearest or its most clearest and understandable point in the book of Acts about 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem where it was first preached to to a crowd of people by Peter and three thousand souls eyes were open they repented of their sins souls who were involved in chanting that Jesus go to the cross, and they became saved, they became a part of the early church. Acts is where it started, but in Jerusalem, but it was no means by where it was to stay. Jesus in Acts 1.8 told his apostles, before Peter preached this message, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and finish the rest, and to the end of the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, this gospel has to get there. And just like there are tons of people, a lot of steps involved in getting iPhones all over the globe, which is Apple's goal, so it is the goal of our Master that His gospel reach the ends of the earth, even where iPhones are not even recognized as a thing. All of us, You and I, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, we are called by God to play a part in advancing this gospel, not just in our neighborhoods, which is a core part of our role, right? We're all to be witnesses, not just to our nation, but to the ends of the earth. Some of us, all of us are called to be witnesses. Some of us are called to be evangelists, to really be about this task. And a few of us are called to leave our homes and where the gospel has not yet been named. We have two people currently in our church, Fernando de Souza and Alex Hart who feel called by God to go to Chad to reach the Kanembu people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the rest of us are called by God to play a part, whether it's as simple as loading a box onto a pallet, or as grand as flying them there, we are to play a part in the advancement of the gospel to those who have never heard. Do you believe that? Paul, as an apostle, was commissioned by Jesus Christ to be the messenger, the one who went and spoke the gospel to those who never heard. He tells us in Romans 15:20 that this was his ambition, not to go where the gospel had already been named, lest he build upon someone else's foundation, but to go where they've never heard of Jesus. Jesus who? Who are you talking about? Let me tell you. Because this was his ambition, because it was his Jesus-given assignment. We see this in Acts nine, fifteen through sixteen. Paul or Jesus rather is speaking to Ananias, and he tells Ananias, You need to go to Paul and restore his sight and give him these instructions. Ananias is like, Uh, you mean the guy who persecutes Christians, Jesus? And what is Jesus' response? Go. For he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine. "...to carry my name before the Gentiles," which is another way of saying, "...the world, those who had not heard, and King and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer suffer for the sake of my name." Philippi, as we learned in our early study of this book, was one of those places that had never heard of Jesus. Paul preached the gospel, planted a church, and continued on from Philippi after that in the advancement of the gospel. And the Philippian church, this is amazing. The Philippian church, though they themselves were once enemies of Jesus, had now joined Paul, who himself was once an enemy of the gospel, as partners in advancing the gospel. Just for some review, Philippians 1.5. Paul says he was thankful to God for them. Why? Because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Philippians 1.7. He says, I hold you in my heart. For you were all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the, de- in, the, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Well, how did they partner with Paul? Did they preach alongside of him? Did they write pamphlets for him to hand out? Which would have taken forever in these days without a printing press. What did they do? Did they travel with him? Let's read our text. So we're going to look at Philippians 4 beginning in verse 10, what uh, one of our elders, Dan, preached from last week to give us context, because it's one long paragraph. Paul says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Okay, so they had a concern for Paul and they revived it. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. She's so saying, you had this concern for me, You've revived it. You were still concerned for me in your heart, but you didn't have an opportunity to show that. So obviously, he's not just talking about a heart posture of concern. He's talking about a tangible way of showing that concern. He continues. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content." I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things, what he just talked about, through him who strengthens me. So he says, Look, you were concerned with you were concerned for me, you were concerned with me, you showed help for that concern. What in what way did they show their concern? Let's continue on in verse 14, our text this morning. Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share. My trouble shares a word of partnering. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in what? What does it say? Giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's how the Philippians partnered with Paul. Ready for it? big, grand thing? They gave him money. He sent money. They met his material needs. And what Paul now is trying to do, and what God, through Paul, for both the Philippians, who are long gone, but now us, who are still here, and the Word of God still speaks today, as it did then. It is living and active. God wants to give you and I the perspective, the spectacles, to see Giving to the advancement of the gospel through His eyes. He wants you to see it is not just putting money in a plate, using push pay, or sending a check. It is so much more than that. And so let's have a big God, big gospel view of our giving from this text this morning. Let's see what God is telling us. Number one, I want us to see this. When we give to the advancement of the gospel, we partner with God. Do you know that? When you give to missions, which is the context here, it obviously goes broader than that, but the context here is missions, taking the gospel to the people group who have not yet heard and planning a church where there is no church. When you give of your finances to missions, you and I are partnering with God. Paul was not carrying out his mission, but Jesus' mission. Remember Acts 9.15 where he says, Jesus says, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. To partner with Paul in this endeavor is, in fact, to partner with God himself. Now, to be clear, this is not a partnership like a business partnership. You do 50% and you do 50%, which, by the way, when does that ever happen? It's like the kid who does 8% of the work and gets your A. God could have chosen to bring his elect to saving faith through a myriad of different ways. He's used angels to bring messages before, he's even used animals to speak truth. He's used visions, dreams. But God in His sovereign plan for His glory and our good has chosen to use us, His redeemed people, to preach His gospel to those who are not yet saved. What a glorious privilege and an honor. So we're partners with God if we partner with missionaries. I want us to see some principles from the Philippians' partnership with Paul so you and I understand what it really means to partner. What does it really mean to partner? First thing I want us to see is that partnering means you're connected to the one you're partnering with, and you view yourself as doing the work with them. This was not a donation. okay? Like when you go to the convenience store and it, it asks you to put a quarter for leukemia, which is great, or put in you know some money for somebody who needs money, and, that, and then you walk away and you forget about it and you're not really involved in it. That's not what giving to the gospel is. Even the gospel is a partnership, not a donation. They viewed themselves as connected to Paul. They viewed his task as their task, his responsibility as their responsibility. Just so you and I are clear, just as much as it is now Alex and Fernando's, because God is calling them to bring the gospel to the Kanembu people, it is our responsibility. It is our task, just as much as it is theirs. Second, they were meeting and sharing in his trouble and his needs. Oh, Paul learned to be content in all circumstances. He viewed their giving as vital. It provided for things like his food, his clothing. Because when you're in prison, it wasn't like today. Tax dollars didn't support the prison system, except maybe the guards. You were on your own for food. They, they, they met his needs, shared in his trouble. And by the way, COVID-19 has left many missionaries in great need. There's ways that we in the states can really share in their trouble. And, to, and find out what those needs are. A big first step, which I was convicted about, is to read their letters. See what those needs are. And then send them help. Thirdly, partnering is elementary. What do I mean by that? By that, It's basic. Paul says this, From the beginning of the Gospel in verse, four, in verse 15, You shared with me since the beginning of the Gospel when I left Macedonia. What does he mean? Well, this wasn't the beginning of Paul's ministry in the Gospel. He's talking about when I brought the Gospel to you, and from the beginning, when you accepted it, right away you started to partner with me. They didn't wait till they were super mature Christians. This was something they realized was their task from day one. He, he says, even in Thessalonica, before Paul even left Macedonia, he backtracked. When he goes to Thessalonica, another Macedonian city, they made sure to partner with him, sending him things for their needs. Fourthly, this partnership was unique. Sadly, he says, no other church except Philippi partnered financially with Paul. God used this one church to meet his needs. Now, God can use multiple churches to meet a missionary's needs. but what we ought to understand is that maybe we're the one church called by God to meet a specific missionary's needs. Fifthly, it was ongoing. He says, once and again, which means multiple times. This was regular. They were partnering with them. They wanted updates. They continually sent money. And if there's any missionaries in this room, current, former, or you know any of them, this next description will probably ring true with them. Partnering with them, with missionaries financially is meaningful to them. Paul greatly appreciated it. How do we know that? He says it was kind of you. To share my trouble, and then he recounts you gave to me when no other church did. You gave to me in Thessalonica. When something is meaningful to you, it sticks in your memory. This mattered to Paul. The Philippians were not preaching next to Paul. They were not setting up his tent, carrying his cargo, having engaging conversations alongside of him, holding his manuscript, editing his manuscript. No, they simply sent him money, and Paul viewed them as partners with God in the gospel. So the obvious question you might think I'm going to ask is, do you give to the advancement of the gospel? Well, yes, ask yourself that question. But even further, how do you view your giving to the advancement of the gospel? Put it in the plate, push the button, transfer the money, which is great. I'm not knocking any of you for that. But then how do you view it in the grand scheme of things? You view yourselves as partners with Tony and Joanna Murin, who were just prayed for this morning as they reach unreached people groups in the jungles of Bolivia. God has created, brothers and sisters, a material world. You don't believe me? Just stomp on the ground for a second. Hit yourself in the face. No one's doing that. Okay. God created a material world, and therefore, his, in his material world, his gospel's advancement requires materials, money, food, water, shelter, medicine, education supplies, gasoline, tires, lumber. And when we enable missionaries to focus on gospel work, on sharing this good news, and we enable them in these other ways, we are partnering in that advancement of the truth. Listen. Materials were required to accomplish the atonement, and materials are required to actually apply the atonement. Jesus died in a wooden Roman cross. People created in the image of God had to nail Him down. He was buried in a tomb hewn out from a rock. God used materials to accomplish the atonement. Now He uses materials, planes, cars, email, food, money, money. Shelter to apply that atonement to those whom he's reaching with this glorious message. When we give of our material resources to a missionary, we are partners with them and with God. Let's not leave it up to another church. Philippi was solo. We have partnered with missionaries before, such as in Tanzania, to reach people groups, such as this in Dawe. Now let's partner with missionaries to reach the Kanembu in Chad. Second, and other points are not as long as this one, I promise you. When we give to the advancement of the gospel, we benefit from God. So we partner with God, and then we are also, we benefit from God. Look at verse 17. Paul says, not that I seek the gift. He's talked about them giving gifts to Him. He's saying, not that I seek that. That's not what I'm after. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit, in a sense, from the gift. It's not about the money, Philippi. It's about the, about the fruit, what the money enables to happen, what it produces. I'll go out on a limb here and share with you a very personal thing. I, I'm an aviation geek. I love airplanes and jets. I love flight. When I was a kid, when we went, how many of you ever been to the Outer Banks? Outer Banks, okay. Did you know that Kitty Hawk is there? Where there was the first, the first flight by Wilbur and Orville Wright in 1903? I was more excited about that than going to the beach as a little kid. Yeah, I'm, I'm a weirdo. When we went to Costa Rica several years ago, I don't know if she's here this morning, Sharon Van Ommeren made fun of me because I had flight simulator on my phone. Yeah. I'd love one day to have a plane, which will never happen, but it's a dream, and fly, be a pilot. However, I am not the least interested in jet fuel or gasoline, whatever it is that makes them fly. I don't care about that liquid. Who cares? But without that liquid that I care nothing about, that plane's not going anywhere. Paul is telling them, look, it's not about the gift, about the money. It's about what that money enables to happen, which, by the way, Philippians, it's not just the advancement of the gospel to those who have never heard. It's actually your growth in the gospel, your fruit. There are many preachers, quote-unquote, today out there, such as Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, I could go on and on, who they're seeking the gift to fill their pockets and rob you. But Paul is a true preacher of the gospel, and there are many true servants of Jesus Christ in the gospel who when they want your money, it's not for them, but they want both the gospel to go forward and they want you to grow as a result. Paul says in verse 17, If you look down with me, I don't seek the gift. I seek the fruit, which literally means the advantage, the gain that is credited to your account. This word fruit is generic on purpose. It's communicating a generic spiritual good. This is a principle. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, Paul says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. Listen, brothers and sisters. Sacrificial giving, when we give of our finances to the advancement of the gospel, is part of our sanctification. Because when we give to advance the gospel selflessly, we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Paul describes Jesus to motivate the Corinthians, who, by the way, when when he left Philippi and the Philippians enabled him, to, to give Corinth was that was the main place he went. He says this in Second Corinthians eight nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Isn't that a crazy thing? When we give materially, we grow spiritually. Only God could do that. The world views the giving away of our finances as loss. Unless it benefits me immediately, like I invest in a nice boat, or I invest in a nice car, or in a portfolio, which, by the way, those things are not wrong. But they view that unless you, if you're not giving to something that materially benefits you, it's a, it's a loss to you. It's backwards. When we give of ourselves as Christ gave of himself, which we've seen in, in Philippians 2, 5-11, We gain blessing. We grow. We have joy. We become more and more like this Jesus. It increases to our benefit. So when we give to the advancement of the gospel, we partner with God and we benefit from God. Thirdly, when we give to the advancement of the gospel, we please God. We please God. Look at verse 18. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. He's basically sending them a receipt. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And now he describes those physical gifts. He calls them a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul encourages them that their financial gift pleases the Lord. He uses some Old Testament language here. He calls it a fragrant offering or a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. We see this language in Genesis when it talks about Noah's sacrifice that he offered. We see this in the the Levitical sacrificial system in Exodus and Leviticus, that when when, when a sacrifice was offered, a burnt offering, the smell was a sweet-smelling aroma to God, and we know that God doesn't actually have nostrils, and He's not actually smelling the smoke. It's It's an image to show us that when sacrifices are given with the right heart, God is pleased. The greatest... Connection, though, to this language is another letter written by Paul in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. I think we'll have it on the screen. Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And what does he call Christ's giving? A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's be clear. You and I could never... Offer up anything acceptable to God before we knew Christ. No religious activity, no financial giving, no restraining yourself from sin outwardly could ever please God. We were all like Cain in Genesis chapter 4. God would not accept our sacrifice no matter what we offered. He had no regard for it. It was not good in his eyes because it was tainted with sin. But in Christ Jesus, with whom God is well pleased. Remember when Jesus was baptized by John, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and there was a voice from heaven, and what did he say? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And my brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus Christ, because you have trusted in his sacrificial death and his perfect life, God looks no longer at you, with whom he was not pleased. He looks at you and says, with so-and-so, I am well pleased. So then when we give out of that new heart that we've been given in our new birth, it's not a giving and a pleasing that adds to our justification. No, that was dealt with by Christ on the cross. You can never add to your standing, but you can add to your sanctification. You can grow more in the likeness of Jesus who always aims to please His Father. And so we can grow in that too. One commentator puts it this way. Paul describing their giving in this way. Elevated that giving to the highest value in God's sight. There's no question that this church gives. Our numbers are doing very well, and we praise God and thank you for that, especially those of us whose salary depends on it. Why do you give, though? Do you do it out of compulsion? Oh, have to give. That's required of Christians. Oh, ten percent, not a penny more. Do you give out of greed? Hmm, if I give, some of these prosperity preachers say, if I sow a lot, I'll reap a lot, thinking I'll reap material gain. Or does your love for God motivate you giving to God's cause? God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver is one who gives with joy. When you write a check, drop cash in the plate, or use push play, pay, please, Fernando really wants you to do that. Do you acknowledge that what you are doing is an act of worship. It's not just pushing a button. It's worshiping God because you're saying, all of this money is yours anyway. It belongs to you and I joyfully give it back. Use it for your means, my God and my King, to further the fame of your Son. God is pleased when we offer our money. But Chris, that's fine. We give. Or gave, I should say. COVID-19 has made it a very trying time. Finances are tight. The economy is shaky. And this upcoming election isn't helping matters much. We're just going to kind of wait until things are more stable. I respect that. We're all tempted to think that way. Let's turn our attention now to our fourth point found in verse 19. When we give to the advancement of the gospel, we trust God. What is God's promise to us through the Apostle Paul's words? Look at verse 19. After, after they, had, they had given, he says, and my God will supply what? What does it say? Every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul makes us a promise. He says, my God will, future reality, fixed, supply, not some, not most, every need, not wants, need of yours. Paul is speaking from experience. Right, he just told us in verses 10 through 13 what he's been through, and that Jesus has been with them all, been through it with them all, or been with him through it all. He says, he says, My God, I know Him intimately. I've experienced this. My God, from experience, will supply all your needs. He'll meet your needs. And God had many times. But Paul is also a Jew familiar with the Old Testament. He's probably speaking from Scripture. How, how many times does God care for Israel and meet their needs? The manna from heaven the quails after they complained. But those things, I think, are shadows. Look at the main connection that Paul makes that God will, in fact, supply our needs. What does he base his claim on? Look, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Most of all, Paul knows God will supply their needs because of the Gospel itself. When you give to the advancement of the Gospel, you need to remember the Gospel. Oh, if I give this much, uh, I might not have X amount left over for what might happen on my house or my car. All of us have lived there. But then you remember, wait a minute, God did not withhold His only perfect Son for me, for my ultimate need, which was to be made right with Him. Is He really not going to provide for my physical needs if I give? Romans 8.32, in talking about Him providing for us spiritually, Paul says, even while we are enemies, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? All that we need, God meets for us in Jesus Christ. Our needs will be met until He decides to call us home. If He stops meeting your needs so that you die, guess what? It's time for you to go home. And then your greatest need will be met. You will be enjoying God to His face for all eternity. Is there greater pleasure than that? No. There's none. There's none. God is not a swindler. He's not looking for your money in order to get rich as if that were possible. It's His. And then leave you poor. He doesn't need your gifts, trust me, but he wants to make you more like Christ by using your gifts as you are. You become a giver, just like he was a giver. He wants you to trust him, which also is becoming like Christ. What did we learn from First Peter two twenty four and the garden and the garden of Gethsemane as Jesus prays? What did he do? He entrusted his life to the Father. Gave it all to the Father. So, do you trust your life, your needs? to the Father when you give away your material goods. You are gaining and practicing trust in God and growing in your heavenly perspective. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6:33? Before that, He says, don't, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. The Gentiles, the world, they are focused mostly on those things. But you seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And what does He say? And all those other things will be added to you. Don't just, seek the, don't just seek the kingdom of God for your own life. Seek the advancement of the kingdom of God all over the globe. And God will add what your needs are to you. When we give, lastly, all of this, all of these points point to this. When we give to the advancement of the gospel, we glorify God. Look at verse 20. Paul just busts out in this doxology. To our God and Father be glory forever. Endeavor. Amen. Our chief goal in life, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Question number one. Answer. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the highest good. Some people ask, why would God create a world with which his providence, his plan, was for man to rebel and then for his son to die? And then for some to go to hell and some to live with Him forever. How is that good? Because there's a more ultimate good, the glory of God. And that plan most glorifies God. And our giving to the advancement of that plan brings glory to God. Paul just breaks out in this doxology. like, man, God, glory be to your name for these dear Philippians who gave to the advancement of the gospel. And if you read, I think it's 2 Corinthians we find that these dear Philippians, they gave not only according to their means in chapter 9, but above and beyond their means to give. God is praised forever. His glory is put on display through our giving. When we, cheer, when we cheerfully give to the advancement of God's gospel, his, of His Son Jesus, even if it's a dollar, we are bringing glory to God, his high, our highest good and our highest satisfaction when we choose to forego spending that extra money on material advantages or wealth, we show the world, we show the angelic realm and our God that He and His mission is infinitely more valuable than fill in the blank. And that shows Him as of the highest worth to the world. Your neighbors will never never understand why you give so much until they know how worthy your God is. So I ask you this morning, What is your perspective on your giving to the advancement of the gospel? Do you view it as a mundane, small, boring, insignificant contribution? Or do you see it through the eyes of God, that it is a partnership with Himself, a benefit received from Him, worship to His name, trust, and most importantly, glorifying to God. May we continue to give to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ with these motives and this perspective to His glory.
1: This life is in all- be hey.
0: like to do this whenever it's appropriate, and that's to give us, with eyes of faith, through believing Scripture, what the future holds for us. And I think during COVID we need this, and also in light of what our giving is able to do and what God's going to use it to do, there's a glimpse of the future, saints. Revelation 7, I'll leave you with this. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, God's going to accomplish His task. Standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their face before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Go in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're dismissed.